Hello and welcome to Season 1 of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held right here on Murramurang country in the Milton Mollymock Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales south coast. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2019. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month features some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from StoryFest 2019. Welcome everybody, how wonderful it is to be here in Milton, which I thought was going to be rainy Milton, but is in fact sunny Milton. Freezing Milton. (laughs) I'm not frozen, anyone frozen? (laughs) Maybe it's the adrenaline. I'm so delighted to be here at StoryFest with Natasha Lester. We are on Murramurang land of the Yuan Nation and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I also wish to thank our festival sponsors for their terrific support of StoryFest. My name's Suzanne Leal. I'm a board member of the Sydney Crime Writers Festival. I was this year's senior judge for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. Um, I'm the author of novels The Teacher's Secret and Border Street. But today it's all about Natasha Lester and I'm here to talk to her about how she became the best-selling author she is today. Natasha is, of course, the author of six books, including her best-selling historical novels, The French Photographer, The Paris Seamstress and A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald. Welcome to you, Natasha. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming along this morning. <laughs> what a great jacket. <laughs> I, saw, I saw Natasha coming with that turquoise uh, blue fluffy jacket and I thought, you've made the right decision today, Natasha. I'm from Perth, so anything below 20 is freezing for me. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning. You write full-time now, but that wasn't always the case. Tell me about your earlier career, Natasha. No, so I do write full-time now, um, but I used to work in marketing before I became a writer. Um, Writing was something I had always wanted to do for my whole life. When I was a child, I wrote books and poems and stories all the time. My mum has kept all of those, which is quite lovely now to look back on. And um, But when I left high school, I didn't really know how to be a writer. You know, if you wanted to be a, a nurse, for example, or a doctor, you went and did a medical degree and then you got a job in a hospital and your career path was kind of there for you, whereas all I knew about writers was that they starved in garrets and that didn't sound like a particularly mm. appealing proposition. So um, I, my dad was an accountant and he had an accounting practice, so he suggested that I do commerce, which, you know, is what every aspiring writer should do, right? Um, but I did my commerce degree and I majored in marketing and public relations because that was kind of a um, – had some writing elements to it. And I worked in marketing for about 10 years or so um, and I finished up in Melbourne working for L'Oreal Paris. I was the marketing manager for Maybelline Cosmetics for quite a while there, which was lots of fun. Every woman in her 20s dream job because I had more lipstick than anyone could ever wear in an entire lifetime. Um, it's one thing I hate now having to go and buy lipstick. It's like, oh no, <laughs> I used to get all that free. Um, and then... My husband had come to Melbourne for my job and he had to go back to Perth for his job. 
And as he'd kind of moved for me, it was kind of only fair that I moved for him, um, which meant that I had to quit my fabulous job at L'Oreal. And so, therefore, I was suddenly unemployed and in Perth. And I knew I wouldn't get quite the same kind of marketing job in Perth that I'd had in Melbourne because um, companies don't have their head offices in Perth as a general rule. So, rather than go and get another marketing job that I knew probably wouldn't be quite what I wanted, I decided I would finally do something about that marketing idea that I'd had in my mind that whole time I'd been working in marketing. And I decided to go back to university to do a degree in creative writing because they had degrees in creative writing by then. And um, I suppose I wanted to do that for two reasons. The first one was it's kind of all very well to think that you would like writing, but then maybe I would give it a try and find out that I hated it. So I wanted to kind of discover that in the university environment and also to find out if I was any good at it. Again, you know, you might think you might be fabulous, but, you know, the stories I wrote when I was eight were probably not literary masterpieces and that was all I kind of had to go on. So um, so I went back to uni and... Um, and did my writing degree, loved it. Um, one of the very first classes I took was a poetry class and I'd never written any poetry and I was quite scared actually of writing poetry and I wrote this poem for an assignment and my tutor said to me, oh, you should try and get this published. And I was like, oh, where do you even get a poem published? Like I had no idea at all. And so he gave me some names of some literary journals and I sent this poem off and to this journal called Overland, which I didn't know anything about and hadn't heard of. And um, by mail, this was like pre-email basically, and got this letter back about three months later saying, oh yes, we'd love to publish your poem and here's $100. It was the best $100 I had ever earned in my whole life because it was that validation. It was that moment when somebody outside of me had said, your writing is good enough to be published. So it kind of all went from there really. And from that poem, you wrote your first novel, which is called What is Left Over After. Now, it's a contemporary novel. How did you come to write that book? So, that actually came out of the poem that I wrote, in fact. So, I wrote this poem, um, which was kind of about um, relationships, mother-daughter relationships. And then that morphed into a short story. And I still couldn't get this idea and these people out of my head. So... I decided to embark on a master's and write this idea that I couldn't let go of as a novel, as my master's thesis. And I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to write a book. I thought that people who wrote books knew what they were doing and kind of planned out their novel in advance and knew what the end was going to be and what the middle was going to be and what each chapter was going to be. And all I had was this little poem and this little short story which were really very nebulous, I must say now, looking back on them. Um, but my supervisor was fantastic. She just said, all you have to do to write a book is just write a bit each day and it doesn't matter if you don't know what the end is. The end will come when you get to the end. Don't worry about that yet. Only worry about the first page and then the second page and then the third page. And that was great advice because it turns out you can write a book by only worrying about it one page at a time. And that's still how my writing process works. It unfolds for me page by page as I write like it does for a reader as they read the book um, which is quite stressful actually not knowing how the book's going to end um, until you're about seven eighths of the way through and finally the ending appears um, but that's just how it kind of works so I wrote that book um, as my master's thesis and was lucky enough to win the TAG Hungerford Award for that which is um, and each state kind of has a prize for an unpublished manuscript and that's the West Australian equivalent and so uh, when you win that prize you then get a publishing contract and that was with a smaller independent press called Fremantle Press and they published the book and winning the TAG Hungerford Award was like the best night of my life. I remember going along to the awards ceremony and um, 
a friend of mine had recently won the Vogels Award and she'd been told before the award ceremony that she'd won so that she would be prepared on the night. And so I thought this must be how all literary award mm. ceremonies worked and I hadn't received the call to tell me that I'd won. So I went along thinking I hadn't and I was scoping out the other two shortlistees all night thinking, oh, which one of them has won? Which one of them are going to have to stab with a dagger at the end of the mm. night? <laughs> and so I literally was never more surprised in my life than when the envelope was opened and my name was read out and I pretty much just about fainted. And But like I look back on that now and think if it hadn't been for that night, I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now so it was really the start of everything I guess. You know it's interesting as a judge for these literary awards these New South Wales premieres literary awards there's a there's two schools of thought that writers should be told that they've won so they're prepared and the shortlisted writers should also know so they can come prepared not nervous um, or that also that shortlisted writers are given a prize themselves so that that all writers come to accept an award. Um, the other school of thought is, how about the surprise factor? What school are you on? Oh, I loved the surprise factor, I've got to say, because um, it was such a surprise. And my husband said to me afterwards, like, as we were driving there, like, I could feel the, like, sadness, the, me thinking I hadn't won. And he was thinking, oh, God, what am I going to say on the way home when she doesn't win? And <laughs> he tells me this afterwards. Um, so, like, having that surprise factor was so wonderful. Like, it really was the best thing ever. Yeah, so I quite liked that. And so from writing a contemporary novel, you then turn to historical fiction. It's a bit of a flip, so I'll just show you in terms of covers. So that's the cover of Natasha's first book, um, which is a very contemporary cover. And then there's the uh, historical fiction, which is a much more commercial cover, uh, much more glossy. So they really are quite different and the writing itself is really very different. What um, prompted the change from one to the other? So I wrote What Is Left Over After and then I had another book published by Fremantle Press in 2012 called If I Should Lose You and then I wrote a third book after that which I thought was going to be my third book and it was very similar in vain to the first two. It was kind of more literary contemporary fiction and the whole time I was writing that book I hated writing it and I couldn't get the voice right and it was – a difficult book to write and it just didn't flow and got to the end of it some 85,000 words later and looked at the book and thought, you know what, I hate the book. I know it's not working, I don't know what's wrong with it and I don't have the heart to find out what's wrong with it and to rewrite it again. My heart's not in this book. So I threw 85,000 words in the bin, which was um, a very bracing experience, I must say. And then I literally sat in a chair like this for a month with next to me a pile of all of my favourite books and I reread all of my favourite books over that month. So books like Margaret Atwood's The Blind Assassin and A.S. Byatt's Possession and Ian McEwan's Atonement and Jane Eyre and Persuasion. And um, in rereading those books I discovered a couple of things that 90% of them were historical fiction or had a strong historical mm -hmm. element to them. And also that all of them had some kind of love story in them. Like they weren't romance novels but they had beautiful love stories in them. And you couldn't imagine Possession without the love story or The Blind Assassin without the love story or Persuasion without the love story. And I'd never written a book like that. And I thought, well, why? If I, that's what I like in what I read. Why have I not written a book like that? And I realised it was because when you write a book as part of a university master's degree, there's an expectation about the kind of book you'll write. It's supposed to be serious and weighty and not happy. No one's ever allowed to laugh in a book like that. It's sad and 
bleak and sombre and all those kinds of things. And so I'd written that because that was what I was expected to write. And then I'd written the second book in the same vein because the first one had been like that. And so I just kept writing what I thought I should write. And then I thought, what if I actually wrote the book I wanted to write rather than the book I thought I should write? And what would that look like? And my mind just suddenly opened up and I went, oh, my God, that's what I want to do. I want to write a historical novel. I want it to have some kind of love story. I want a woman to be at the centre and I want it to be about a woman striving to do something that was unusual for a woman to do at that time in history. And so for A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, that turned out to be a woman trying to become one of the first female obstetricians in New York in the 1920s. And I loved every minute of writing that book. It was a completely different experience to the book I had thrown in the bin. I couldn't wait to get to my desk every day. I couldn't wait to immerse myself in the world of that story and those characters and I loved it so much. Even though the whole time I was writing it, I had this voice kind of sitting on my shoulder saying, you can't change genre and agent and publisher because I knew my publisher and agent wouldn't take this book on all at once. Like, that's crazy. Maybe change one thing but not three things. But I wrote it anyway in spite of the fact that I was probably crazy. And luckily enough, um, I was able to get a new agent and um, able to get a publisher and it all kind of worked out from there. So, yeah, so that's kind of how it happened. And it, it, it was unplanned and I didn't mean to. It was because I failed in a very big way on this third book that went in the bin. Um, but sometimes your failures are your best teachers and it certainly was the case for me in that moment. I can't help but ask, how long did it take you to write those 80,000, 85,000 oh, like two words? years worth two of work, years. yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Can you imagine working <laughs> for two years yeah. and suddenly your employer says, actually, we're not going to be paying you yeah. for that? <laughs> it was two years and I had, um, like, so I was writing that over 2012, so I had a... A two-year-old, a four-year-old and a six-year-old at the time as well. <laughs> so it was like cramming it into the mm. spaces of my life and then throwing it out. <laughs> and you know what I love most of all when I'm in interviewing writers or, or any, particularly women, but other men who have done things, is when you admit that things haven't always gone your way, that things haven't always been successful. I've always been a little bit um, interested by high-flying, particularly corporate women, who say, you just got to be efficient. And it's clear that that's only a very small part of the story. And I think it's uh, really encouraging, and I'm sure there are many writers out here, who um, to know that things don't always work first go or second go. Um, what is it, though, that after two years kept you going? Why not ditch it, go back to marketing, do something else? What kept you writing when so long had been expended on that writing, so much had gone into it, and then it hadn't worked the way you wanted to? I think it was because despite everything I still loved writing. I didn't like writing that book because it was the wrong book but the minute I began writing A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald I was in love with writing again and I think really to be a writer you have to love the writing. Writing is a roller coaster. There's so many ups and downs and if you don't love it you're never going to be able to ride through those very down downs. Um, so I think it really comes down to that that I always had wanted to be a writer or something I always did and that love was still there despite the fact that I had thrown 85,000 words in the bin. But, and I guess also deep in my heart, I knew that was the right thing to do as well. I knew that, you know, I would never have been proud of that book and I wouldn't have ever have wanted to put something out there that I wasn't 100% behind and 100% proud of. So then it was up to me in that moment to go, okay, well, you can just go back to marketing or you love writing, dig down deep within you and find the thing you love and get it on the page. And I guess that's what I did. And generally speaking, rather than specifically to each of the books, what do you like about historical fiction? 
So there's a few things. I mean, you know, who wouldn't want to spend their whole day, you know, <laughs> casting their mind back to the 1920s or the 1940s and seeing people in beautiful gowns and writing amazing stories. So there's, there is that kind of beautiful imaginary element to it. But also I love the research. I've always loved history. History's always been something I'm fascinated by. So the research element and diving deep into an element of history, like for the French photographer, the experience of female war correspondents, for instance, was completely fascinating and I would never have known anything about that if I hadn't have written that book and you know it was there was just a wealth of eye-opening information there but uh, over and above everything I think historical fiction is a wonderful commentary on today's society because it shows us in some ways how far we've come so for example with the kiss from Mr Fitzgerald that's about a woman trying to become one of the first female obstetricians and so the way female obstetricians were were treated back then was they were treated very poorly by the very male um, medical establishment. But also it shows us how far we still have to go because after every single talk I did for that book, I would have a female medical student, a, current, a female doctor come up to me and say, you know what, the sexism might be a little bit more subtle now but it's still very entrenched, it's still very much a part of being a female um, medical student, female doctor, anything like that. So a lot hadn't changed and I think therefore that's why historical fiction matters and that's why I'm so drawn to it because it's look it's surveying the vast sway of decades and saying we still have so much work to do. And can I really recommend that particular book to you? It was my favourite. I'm, I'm a big audio person. So I've been listening to more and more audio books as I've gone on as they've become more available. Are there audio people in the audience as well? And I think, um, Natasha, your books work particularly well uh, in this uh, as audio because the plot continues so relentlessly. Um, things are always happening. There are subplots. There are characters who are finding themselves in difficult situations. We're learning more about a particular time in history. And in A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, we're learning an awful lot about Les Folies um which is the um, you know, French Cancan showgirls. Tell me how Evie, obstetrician student, came to merge with Evie, showgirl, for you. <laughs> so that was... And I guess the other thing with writing historical fiction, you get to explore things that you have always been fascinated by. So many years before I wrote A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, I was watching a documentary in the ABC and it was about the history of music. And there was one tiny segment of the show and it's always one small section of something much larger that attracts the writerly imagination. And it was about the Ziegfeld Follies. So these were... Um, the Ziegfeld Follies were this massive Broadway review-style show that was incredibly popular in New York City, um, particularly through the 1920s, but really from sort of 1910 through to about 1935. That was when they really kind of went off the boil a bit. Um, but it was like um, the place to go. If you were in New York, you went to see the Ziegfeld Follies and the showgirls were on the stage and they were amazing. They were the celebrities of the time and I was just fascinated by that. And so I'd written on a piece of paper, Ziegfeld Follies, when I saw that documentary and put it away in my desk and really didn't know whether I would ever have an idea, a story idea to attach that to, but I just knew that I was quite fascinated by that. And so then when I started writing A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald and um, it was set in the 1920s, it was set in New York, mm. um, and my um, main character, Evie, um, as a female at that time wanting to do 
go to medical school even, let alone be an obstetrician. It was a very ostracising thing for a woman to do at that time. So she didn't have the support of her parents, so she therefore had to pay her own way through medical school. So how would she do that? Oh, Ziegfeld Follies. <laughs> so all of a sudden I could pull this other idea into the book. And I find that's how books come about. It's always three or four seemingly quite disparate and random ideas suddenly coming together to say, actually – if you stir the pot right, you could put all these ideas in and a story might come out at the end of that. So, yeah. And the story comes. And in fact, we don't leave fashion with that. We move to the Paris seamstress in which fashion plays a large part for your protagonist, Estella Bisset. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so the Paris seamstress, um, that was... I was stuck for a little bit of a a time for an idea for that book. I um, had kind of just been writing so hard through A Kiss to Mr Fitzgerald because I still had my son at home with me. He wasn't old enough to go to school yet and so it was still kind of cramming writing into spaces of time and I hadn't had time to just sit and think and let my mind kind of uh, be empty and I think actually for the ideas to come sometimes you just have to have an empty mind and not be looking at your phone and, and not be occupied and I hadn't had that time and um, I was a little bit worried that I wasn't going to come across the idea for the next book. I had like I, the well had run dry or something like that. I'd, um, you know, I'd written and that was going to be it. But then I was listening to a podcast um, called The Bowery Boys. It's a New York history podcast, and the episode I was listening to was about uh, New York's fashion history. And again, one small part of the podcast talked about the fact that up until the war years, the Second World War years, 1940s, there had been no ready-to-wear industry in the world and the world's entire fashion industry was a copy of the Parisian fashion industry. Um, Nobody designed dresses anywhere other than Paris and then there was a long chain of copies to get the Paris design to New York or Sydney or anywhere else. Um, And then suddenly when the Germans occupied Paris during the Second World War, nobody could get those designs out of Paris. So suddenly the world was like, oh, what, what will women wear? oh, we might have to actually decide that for ourselves. And so the ready-to-wear industry was born in the 1940s in New York. Um, I thought, wow, that's quite fascinating. I would love to write about that. And so the Paris themes just really came out of that, um, wanting to combine that idea of uh, occupied Paris and what happened to its fashion industry during the Second World War versus what happened to the fashion industry in Manhattan during the war, which suddenly bloomed and blossomed. And as we follow fashion through to the Paris seamstress, so we follow the war through to the the French photographer. And and what's that about, your new book? So the French photographer is really about um, the experience of the female war correspondents during the Second World War. Um, The main character, Jessica May, um, is based on a woman called Lee Miller. Um, And Lee Miller was an amazing uh, amazing woman who had multiple different careers through her life. So just very quickly, um, Lee began life um, as a very famous model working for Vogue and a lot of the American magazines in the 1920s. And um, her modelling career was cut short when an image of her was used without her knowledge and without her permission in an advertisement for Kotex sanitary products. Um, And it's quite hard for us to imagine how appearing in an advertisement for sanitary products could end your modelling career. But back in those days, I always say, you know, menstruation was like the eighth deadly sin back then. And you weren't allowed to do it, even if you're a woman. Um, And you certainly weren't allowed to have your image appear in relation to those kinds of products. So... 
advertisers didn't want their products appearing in the same magazine that had the Kotex girl on the front cover and Lee became known as the Kotex girl. So she couldn't model anymore. Um, so she moved to Paris, as you do when one, one career ends. And she met Man Ray, the famous surrealist photographer, and he'd been a fashion photographer too. Um, and she became Man Ray's lover and he taught her photography in Paris in the 1930s and she became quite well regarded as a surrealist photographer in her own right. And then when the Second World War began, she had another kind of change in direction and she was accredited by Vogue as their photojournalist reporting on the war through Europe. Um, and she, she witnessed some quite extraordinary things. She witnessed the US Army's first use of napalm in Saint-Malo. All those photos were censored. She wasn't allowed to publish those um, because the US Army didn't want anyone to know that's what they were doing. Um, she w was one of the first women to be there at the liberation of Dachau concentration camp, which was obviously a really difficult experience, particularly as a photographer, because you really have to look at things to be able to photograph them. Um, that really bruised her soul, I think you could say. Um, and a couple of days later, she uh, went to Munich and was um, staying in Hitler's apartment in Munich, in fact. And there's a very iconic photograph of Lee in Hitler's bathtub. And she's filthy because it's been like two years of war and everyone's dirty. No one's had a bath for two years. And she's just come from Dachau and her boots are filthy and she wore paratrooper boots and they're sitting on Hitler's bath mat in his pristine white bathroom and she was outraged at how clean his bathroom was when what he had done to Europe and so she got this photo taken as a statement to kind of say despite everything you know we are the victors and it's it's very iconic you can go and have a look at it on the internet and so she did all these incredible things and um but was so scarred by that that after the war she basically excised from her life the fact that she had been a photojournalist during the war and had taken these incredible photos and written these amazing stories. And uh, so effective was she at kind of cutting off that part of her life that when she died her son didn't know that she had done that until he found in the attic of Lee's home 60,000 pieces of her wartime paraphernalia, her letters to her editor, her articles, her photographs, her prints, her films, her negatives, mm. her cameras um, and he realised that he'd found something really quite remarkable that the photos were amazing not just as kind of documentary records of the war but they were artistic beautiful photographs of terrible things and so he resurrected Lee and her legacy and now she's widely regarded as one of the war's preeminent photojournalists her work has been widely exhibited all around the world and I was fascinated by many elements of her story the transition from model to photojournalist working in a very male environment and how might that be if you were a woman as beautiful as Lee had been and then also how it is for so many women to have done something so remarkable and then to be so utterly forgotten and to need to then be resurrected after they, were, after they had died. So a lot of those elements of the story wove into the French photographer. And yet you weren't satisfied just with that historical aspect. In the last two historical books, so The Paris Seamstress and The French Photographer, you've also woven in a contemporary strand. Yes. Tell me about doing that. Okay, so that was a bit of an accident. <laughs> um, I had started writing The Paris Seamstress as a straight historical novel and I had thought it was just going to be, you know, it's just taking place in the war years. And I wrote myself into a, a terrible plot knot, if you like. Mm. The whole story was tied up in this 
um, tight mess of this mystery that I, ne- I needed to unravel and I didn't know how to unravel it. This is what happens when you don't plan your books in advance. <laughs> and <laughs> so you shouldn't do that. So I was at like 85,000 words and I normally the books are about 125. So I had like 40,000 words still to write and a plot to untangle and a mystery to solve. And I didn't know how to do that. So I went to France to do some research, <laughs> hoping France would present me with the um, answer to all of my plot problems. France was fabulous, but it did not present me with the answer to all of my plot problems. Damn it. Um, So I came back and I thought, well, that's okay. I'll just redraft the book and write it again. And by the time I get back to that point, my writing mind will have untangled the knot and um, I will be fine. Anyway, I got to the same point and I still didn't know what was going to happen. And all my characters are up on these massive cliffhangers going, let me down, let me down. I'm going, I don't know how. I'll stay up there for a bit longer. Um, And then... I was quite stressed because this was August and normally I had my book into my publisher at the end of November. So I had like, I don't know, what's that, three months and I still didn't have a complete draft of this book and I still didn't know how it was going to end. And the three months is not a long time to actually work that out. Um, so I went to Adelaide. I was speaking at a conference and on the plane on the way to Adelaide, I watched a documentary about Tiffany & Co, the jewellery store. It was just a diversion, you know, it was just interesting. It was diamonds, you know, what's not to like about diamonds. Um, and I got to Adelaide and went to sleep in my hotel room and woke up at three o'clock in the morning with all of these vivid scenarios running through my mind and in these vivid scenarios was um, Estella, the main character's granddaughter. And Estella hadn't had a granddaughter up until this moment in my hotel room in Adelaide at three o'clock in the morning. Suddenly she'd acquired a granddaughter and the granddaughter was quite an important person and there was also this man who was the creative director at Tiffany & Co, the jewellery store, clearly prompted by the documentary that I'd watched on the plane. And they were so vivid that I had to get up and write them down and I was thinking the whole time, well, this is just such a waste. I should be sleeping. I've got to present at this conference tomorrow. I'm going to have like my eyes hanging out of my head. Why am I writing this stuff down? But I could, it was so relentless I had to and I thought I'd laugh at it in the morning and curse myself for not sleeping. And anyway, I looked at it in the morning and it was actually not, It was actually quite good. It's amazing what you can do at three o'clock in the morning in a hotel room in Adelaide. And I also realised that if I did weave in another storyline with Estella's granddaughter and this man, these people who had invented themselves in the middle of the night, then I could unravel the mystery by having this contemporary storyline in there. I could get all my characters down off their cliffhangers, give them all an ending of sorts and get to the end of the book. And so that's how The Paris Seamstress became a dual narrative. And I enjoyed writing it that way so much that I then decided to do the same thing in The French Photographer. And But I p- planned to do that. So that was a much more orderly process than The Paris Seamstress had proven to be. Yeah. So would that be your top tip for any aspiring <laughs> historical fiction writers? Um, if, you, uh, if you come to a plot not... Add another strand? Yeah, I don't know. I think the, the moral of the story is, you know, if you can plan your story in advance, do so. Um, do as I – don't do as I do. Do as I say. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we've got about 15 minutes left before we'll turn to questions and I'm assuming that there are a number of people in the audience who are writing, who are interested in writing and who might like to know a little bit about gaining commercial success and just how it happens. So I'd like to start with... This implies I know. Uh, <laughs> not sure that I do. Look at the jacket, Natasha. <laughs> what do you say commercial fiction is? How would you define it? I don't think I do define it. I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I leave all that kind of thing to the publishers. Um, I, I don't know what commercial fiction really means. I mean, I think at the end of the day you sit down and write the book that you love and the publisher will kind of put that where they will. <laughs> Let me put the question another way. 
Why do the publishers like your more recent books, do you think? Why are they so popular? Why are you so in demand? I don't know. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Anybody else have an answer for me? I don't know. I mean, I think that writing – there's three things that – writing a book comes down to it is a lot of hard work but there's a lot of timing involved and you can just be lucky with your timing and there's a lot of luck and for some reason um timing worked well also apparently having the word paris in the title of your book is for some reason people like that and that works well i didn't know that until i put the word paris in the title of my book my publisher said yeah that's great paris always sells really well um so i wish i could say that i had had foresight and planning and i knew what i was doing but i had no idea it was just an accident that the book was set in paris and had the word paris in the title um so i I think it is you know you do the hard work and you write the book but there are so many writers who do the hard work and write a good book and who don't hit the bestseller chart. So I don't think anybody ever really knows why a book does that. Mm-hmm. It is a lot to do with timing and a lot to do with luck and that mysterious factor that makes some books suddenly take in, off into the stratosphere and others not do that. Um, and if we all knew what that factor was, we would all be bestsellers and we're not, so clearly nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Do you need likeable characters or not necessarily? Uh, I think you probably do need likeable characters. I mean, But certainly, you know, there are other books out there that don't have likeable characters and will suddenly, you know, take off and be uh, a best-selling kind of novel. So, I, I don't I don't think there is a magical combination of elements that you can put into a book and say that's going to therefore have success. I think, you know, I think when you write what you love, it shows and then the reader will hopefully love it too. But there's not a particular melange of, of ingredients that goes into that. I mean... The Paris Interest came out in the US last year and um, like I always say, and it's true, when I literally thought the book would sell two copies in the US because why would anybody buy a book written by an author from Perth? I mean, most Americans probably don't even know where Perth is for a start and there's so many books over there. You know, why would they buy my book? It just seemed unrealistic and unbelievable that anybody would buy it and so I thought that all would be returned to the publisher um, my publishing career in the US would be over in about a month and nobody would ever mention it again because it would be the most embarrassing thing in the world this you know truncated publishing career I'd had in America um, and then you know who knows why the book suddenly started you know it was the third biggest selling book in Canada for a week we spent three months in the publisher's weekly top 25 um chart in the US. Uh, I mean, how you get in the top 25 books in the US, I have, I literally have no idea. But it somehow happened and every time my publisher sent me the list and there was my name on it, I would look at my name and go, surely that can't be my name. They must have photoshopped my name into this chart. And I would have these visions of them taking boxes of my books into a bookshop, sticking them on the shelves and taking a photo, taking the books down and putting them in the box and sending me the photo just to prove that it was kind of in bookstores because I wasn't there. I didn't know. I couldn't see what was happening. It was so hard to imagine that it really was happening. It still feels surreal even now that all of that happened over there. So, um so, yeah, when I sort of looked at the, the topic of this session, it was becoming a bestseller. I thought, God, that implies I know how that happened and I really don't know how that happened. I mean, I think the, probably the lucky break was um, there's a big chain of bookstores, a big chain of department stores in America called Costco um, and they have a buyer at Costco called Penny. Um, and so my publisher sent me through this very excited email with lots of exclamation marks saying, oh my goodness, the Paris interest is Penny's pick for December. I'm like, who the fuck is Penny? (laughs) (laughs) 
had no idea. I was so underwhelmed. And my publisher was probably thinking, oh, you ungrateful woman. But I didn't know. Um, so apparently Penny is the buyer for Costco and she picks one book a month that she is her favourite book for that month and she loves it. And all the Costco stores in the US have a big Penny's Pick display and it, there's an article about it in the Costco newsletter and all of that kind of thing. And so once I understood a little bit more what Penny's Pick was, I did get excited. But I still hadn't had no idea of the um, scope, I guess. And then they sent me through a figure for the print run that they were doing just for Costco. And I think that's when I kind of went, whoa, okay, that's a big number. Um, And then it kind of took off from there. And we had Target coming on board in February. I hadn't got into Target when it came out in September. Um, And then to pick up a new retailer kind of six months after the book is out is very unusual. But because it was doing so well, it just kind of extended out and kept going and... um, yeah, like I said, the, the I think I said this last night, the only time at which I suddenly believed it had really happened was when I got my royalties check in March and there was this lovely number on there that I thought, wow, okay, so all of that stuff really did happen. Look at that. <laughs> so note to self, email Penny. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Get on Penny's list. <laughs> the first page test. Do you work hard at your first page? Is it important to get a reader's attention from the very first page? Yeah, I think probably the most rewritten part of my book would be the first chapter over and over and over again. And also because when you write the first draft, I don't write the first chapter first because I don't know what the first chapter is going to be because I don't know the order of the book yet. So um, you've got to work out what that first chapter is going to be to start with. Um, But then I do find that... um, like with the Parasamestress in particular and A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, the first chapters in those books, once you get that idea in your head of, oh, I need that scene to start with, somehow something quite magical can happen and that scene just unfolds for you so beautifully and it's a little bit like you're taking dictation and some voices telling you what to write. And so the first, I remember the first chapters vividly in both of those two books there um, because they actually went through the editing process quite unchanged they did kind of unfold quite well um but there is a lot of working out of what is that first chapter going to be it's kind of important and you don't always know when you start and it's not always the chapter you think it's going to be so so it is something you focus on because you know people do these days you you know you see um reviews on goodreads saying oh the first chapter was boring so i put the whole book down just on the basis of one chapter so people's attention spans sometimes seem to be um you know sort of shorter than they used to be they want to be very captivated very early on in a book so i I guess you kind of are aware of that when you get to the editing phase so when you're writing you kind of want to just let your creativity flow and not censor or constrain yourself so I don't worry about anything like that when I'm running a first draft it's just kind of get the story out and later you can make it the best possible version of that story but the first thing you have to do is get the story down. We've been speaking about you as a writer I'd like to bring you as the marketer back in as well how important as a writer is it to market yourself? Certainly the publishers do like you to do a bit of the marketing work but also within the boundaries of what you're comfortable with. I don't think any publisher ever wants any writer to do anything they don't feel comfortable doing. Um, I mean, working in marketing, I used to stand up in front of 300 people at our sales conference and do a big presentation about 
our new products coming out and we'd go to Sydney all the time and talk to all the beauty editors about our new products coming out. So I was very comfortable talking to big groups of people, which has been handy because, you know, you, you come and talk to groups of people like I am doing today and I feel quite comfortable and happy doing that and you might have gathered I could probably sit here and talk for three hours mm. and never run out of things to say. Quite like a chat. Um, so I think those sorts of things are quite are quite good. Um, I mean, I like the marketing side of things. I, I, I like, you know, I'm quite happy to procrastinate for half an hour on Facebook doing social media work, um, which is really work. Um, yeah, so I, I enjoy that sort of thing. But I think that everybody has to decide for themselves how much marketing work they, they are happy to do and to only do the kind of marketing that they feel comfortable with because you, you can't ever do something you're not comfortable with or that feels forced because I think it shows. So um, I think that's you know, that's important. And what does it mean to have a brand as an author? What's an author's brand? Um, I mean, you hear that quite a lot. I mean, I don't really... I don't know whether people buy in so much to an author's brand or whether they just like the kinds of stories that an author actually tells. I think that's probably more what it boils down to. So um, I don't worry too much about that. And I think those kinds of things unfold... Like when I'm talking about things on social media, I'll often put up pictures of beautiful dresses that I've seen in some of the museums that I've visited around the world. Um, and some people might say, oh, you know, fashion is a part of your author brand. But it's, it's not really. It's just that I, that's what I write about. And if I write about that and readers like it, then they might like looking at those kinds of pictures on Instagram or whatever. And I put them up because I like looking at those pictures. So it's kind of – it's. It, I think if you are just who you are, then – that's all your author brand can ever be, you and who you are because you can't be anybody else and nobody can would, would want you to be anybody else because it would feel fake and forced. And so um, I believe it all comes down to readers falling in love with the story and that's what they, that's what they want and that's what they want to see and, and, you know, to talk about the stories and that sort of thing. You've also said that being a writer is managing a small business. Yes. Well, what did you mean by that? I mean, as a writer, you are your own CEO, you're, you're an accountant, you know, there's a whole lot of other work that goes on behind the scenes, um, you know, you're doing your invoicing, you're managing all your, your money and your books and making sure that the accountants are happy at the end of the financial year when you present them with your accounts and it kind of all balances out and um, you're deciding strategically what you're going to do if you get, you know, for example, a couple of different publishing offers from from Germany, we had a couple and we ha I had to work out which one would be, would be best for me to take when I knew nothing about these German publishers. So you're constantly making those kinds of decisions as well as writing the books and doing the marketing and doing the publicity. And so it's it's everything. It's not just the writing. Um, and it's, um, it's a massively all-encompassing job where you're using every part of your brain all of the time, which... I mean, I think is kind of what I love about it because it isn't ever just one thing and it isn't ever boring and it isn't ever dull. Um, I mean, the writing's still the heart of it, obviously, all those things are only there because the writing is driving the business, if you like. But certainly, you know, you do have to do all those other things as well. And bearing that in mind, how do you organise your day then? So you're writing full-time. What does a full-time writing day look like for you? Well, I say I'm writing full-time, but I'm really only writing in school hours because I've 
two of my kids are still in primary school. One's just cracked high school. So I can't, when they get home from school, I can't just leave them to their own device and say, knock yourselves out, do what you like. Because um, they'll probably be either dead or I've killed each other. <laughs> um, so I'm really only writing in, in school hours. My writing day always starts with a, a run or a walk because that's a really important part of my writing process, getting out and moving and having that kind of active meditation, I guess, where I do a lot of writing in my head while I'm running or walking, um, thinking about the scenes I'm going to write or particularly problematic areas of the plot, um, for example. Um, and then I sit down at my desk at about nine o'clock after I've dropped the kids and done my run and then I write till about um, quarter to three. Which it's never enough hours, so I'm always back at my desk every night for an hour from half past seven to half past eight doing admin. I can't write at night. Um, um, but, but then, you know... If, the kids are off at tennis on Saturday morning. I'll be back again just doing another hour. You learn – one of the things I thought I hated about writing my first two books was that I was writing them in my kids' nap time. So when they would go down for their day's sleep for an hour and a half, I would write furiously for that hour and a half, as many words as I could. I wouldn't even let myself go to the toilet because there wasn't enough time to pee. Um, so I'd, I'd write and I, I would think, oh, imagine how fabulous it would be to have the whole day to be able to write and it would be wonderful. And But what I didn't realise was that that was teaching me how to be disciplined and how to be mm. efficient and how to not waste time because there was never a time to be wasted. And that has carried over into the way I write now. I don't – I turn the Wi-Fi off when I'm writing um, – my writing day is just for writing. It's not for anything else, not for, you know, wasting time on Facebook. And I just write um, in half-hour blocks. I get up every half an hour because writing is actually quite bad for your back. Mm. And um, also I find I'm more productive in just a half-an-hour block than I will be in two hours. Make a cup of tea, come back another half an hour, etc. And then I get through my day that way. Um, and in a first draft when I'm on a roll, I can write 5,000 words like that over the course of that day. Um, and then, but I write my first drafts very quickly in sort of eight to ten weeks, and then I spend the rest of the year rewriting them another f- sort of five times. That's pretty much how it works. And when you have to do the administration, um, do you curtail it? Uh, do you have somebody to help you with it? Or basically, you're the person that does the social media, answers the emails? Yeah, no, it's all me. Um, I think you have to. You can't not. You can't have someone else doing your social media because then it's not you and then so it wouldn't be real. Uh, and also the reader emails. Like I want to read the emails that come in from the readers and the messages and I want to be the one who responds to them because if they've taken, you know, for someone to take the time out to send me a message on Facebook to tell me how much I loved, how much they loved my book, that's, that's I love that. That's so special. And so I want to be the one to personally say thank you to them for taking the time to do that because they didn't have to. So I wouldn't want someone else to be kind of doing that sort of stuff for me. Just before we turn to questions, who in the audience writes with Scrivener, a, um, a software system? Yeah, we've got a few here. You're a big um, a proponent of the system. I am too. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about why you like using Scrivener and what it is. Um, Scrivener brings order to the chaos is <laughs> basically in a nutshell. Because I don't write um, in a linear way and start at the beginning and work through to the end, I'm just writing a whole lot of scenes, it enables me to... Um, structure and order those things very easily without having to cut and paste like you do in words. And I can see the book in colours and stages and so uh, it just works for my wild and unorganised writing mind. <laughs> so for those who are unfamiliar with it, it's, it's a software system where on the page, on the computer page, you see a list of scenes or a list of characters or a list of um, settings that go right down one part of the page. You have a, 
a Word document effectively to write your script and then you have a notes area. Now that's very a very sort of rough idea of it. But what it does um, is take over, I think, would you agree, Natasha, from the, um, the, the um, notice board um, effect of just popping... Um, clips and cards in. Would you agree that's yeah, how it works? Yeah, I think it digitizes so. it? And, you know, I keep all... It stores all my research stuff, so all my photos from Paris and my research documents. Everything's all in the one place, so I don't have to leave Scrivener and go look for something on the internet because it's all there, um, which is nice. You don't want to ever have to go and look on the internet for something because that's the rabbit hole. <laughs> and what's next for you, Natasha? So I'm working on a book called The Dior Legacy at the moment, um, which will be out in March next year. And so that's about a, a woman whose grandmother has asked her to go and check on a cottage that she owns in Cornwall. Um, and as far as the granddaughter knows, her grandmother has never visited this cottage or lived in this cottage, even though she's owned it for a number of years. And so the granddaughter goes along thinking she's just looking out for rodents and insects that might have you know, moved into the house to, just to make sure everything's still standing. And as she's walking through the house, checking out all the rooms, she walks into one bedroom in which there's a wardrobe and she opens up the wardrobe door to see what's inside. And I always feel like I'm doing Narnia when I do opening the wardrobe door, but it's not Narnia in the back of the wardrobe. Um, instead, it's a collection of Christian Dior haute couture gowns, one each year dating back to his very first collection in 1947, right through to the present day. And it's all about the mystery of why in this abandoned cottage in Cornwall is this collection of Christian Dior gowns, 60 dresses dating back from 1947. Mm, so look out for that one. We've got 10, 15 minutes left for questions. Who is my first question person? What I'm going to do is ask you to wait for the microphone that's coming. Yes, sorry, the, the woman in the scarf. Thank you. Hi. Can you tell me if you do all your research first and then you just sit down and write or do you ever research as you go along and think, oh, I don't know that bit, I'll just dock off and check? Um, that's a really good question. Um, some historical fiction writers think that what I do is uh, the world's worst process, but this is what I do. I can only tell you what I do. So I don't do very much research at all when I write the first draft. I usually start with a book that's a broad a book that's broadly on the topic I'm writing about. So for the French photographer, the book that I was reading as I was writing that first draft was a book um, that pulled together the experiences of a number of the different female war correspondents during the Second World War. Um, and so that gave me a broad perspective on the sexism that they faced and all of their different all the different ways in which they were the men tried to limit them to not do their job that they had been accredited for. It also gave me the names of a number of the different female correspondents that I could then go and look up and see whether I could find a collection of their reports or a memoir written by them or something like that. So it was a kind of a broad overview of, of the topic. And that was pretty much all I read when I was writing that first draft because I like for the first draft for me, because I don't know what I'm doing in the first draft, to be unconstrained and purely my imagination being allowed to run wild and find out what is the story in this kind of character inspired by Lee Miller, what is her story and what, what is the reader going to be interested in about her. Um, and I feel like for me, if I do the research first, I will be constrained by what the research tells me is possible and I don't want to have that constraint. I want to be allowed to just let the story go where it wants to go. Also because I don't actually know what the story is going to be, I don't know what to research. I, my research scope would be too broad and it would take too long. So I write the first draft, has lots of gaps in it, it has lots of notes to me saying find out some more information about this thing in particular. 
And then at the end of that first draft, I take a month off and I do the research. So I usually travel. So I went to um, France, I went to Normandy and Paris um, for that book and um, did a lot of research on the ground, visiting the places that um, my character goes to in the book. And I also do a lot of reading in that time too. So reading all the other books. So I read Martha Gellhorn's memoir, because Martha, who was a very famous female war correspondent, is a character in the book. Um, I read all of her war reports. I read all the war reports of a number of other female correspondents and their memoirs. Really dove deeply into the subject. And then in the second draft, it's all about... Because that first draft, you know, acts as my research blueprint. So I only research to fill in what is missing from that first draft. So it's my scope is defined, if you like. Then after I've done that month, I go back and write the second draft with all of that new knowledge to fill in all those gaps that I have. Um, but always the integrity of the story remains there because it was never kind of forced into a particular research path. It was just what was the right story that I needed to tell for that book and that character. Do we have another question? There's a gentleman at the back. Ladies, Ray. Hi, I was just wondering if you would happen to know um, what the the current um, best-selling sort of genre is that, that um, publishers are looking for. Um. And also, <laughs> how long does a that favourite sort of genre kind of lasts for? Yeah. Like is it it, it'll be gone by the time you've written the book for it. <laughs> so uh, the thing is to always just write the book that you want to write and not worry about the market. I mean, people might say Australian crime fiction is hot at the moment, but if you sit down to write an Australian crime fiction novel now, so it took me five years from the time I started writing my first book until the time it was published. So in five years' time, Australian crime fiction is probably not going to be the hottest thing. It'll be something, it'll be zombie Western romance or something, I don't know. <laughs> and so you'll kind of miss the market. So, um, you know, historical fiction is enjoying this renaissance and this heyday. That's fabulous. Long may that last, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think it's always about writing what you want to write. Like, I don't, I don't read a lot of crime. I don't know much about crime at all. So, for me to sit down and, and write a crime book just because it was particularly going well at the moment it wouldn't be right. I wouldn't. I don't. I would need to read the genre to be able to write the genre. So it's always about writing the book you want to write and kind of ignoring the trend because the trend will have gone by the time your book is ready to be published. Um, publishers are looking for new, fresh voices telling a great story in your own unique way, and that's what they're after. No matter what the genre it happens to be, uplit perhaps uplit uh, enthusiasm, kindness, humour. Another question. Thank you. Once you've written the story, where do you go from there to find a publisher? So there's a couple of different ways that you can go about that. Um, You can try to find a literary agent first. So a literary agent is someone who will represent you and take your book to publishers and they'll only take you on if they think your work is, um, you know, saleable. And so the publishers know when they receive a manuscript from a literary agent that it's already been through a kind of a gatekeeper. So they're going to read that before they read manuscripts that are just sent directly to them by a writer. Um, So if you can get an agent, that's great because they can do all that negotiation for you. So for example, with A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, um, I had an agent for that book and so she pitched that book out to eight different publishers from whom we got offers from four of those publishers. So then we're able to kind of choose who we thought would be the best fit for me, um, which I chose Hachette and, you know, my publisher there is fantastic and I'm so glad that I chose her. If, you, if you're not able to get an agent, then you can approach publishers directly. And most publishers have these days um, 
certain like once a month they'll have a day where you can send off your manuscript to them and um and it, it gets read by someone at the publishing house and the best way to find out who might be the right publisher to approach is to look at the books in your genre that you're writing in, in the kind of the copyright page in the front there and see who that book was published by and approach those publishers so that you kind of can narrow down. There's no point sending the book out to every publisher because they might not publish in that genre, so narrowing it down that way. So that's the best way to go. And, I mean, the whole time I was writing my first book, everyone was saying, oh, it's so hard to get published. I don't know why you're doing that. But... I'm living proof that it's still possible. So don't let anyone ever tell you it's too hard and you won't ever get published. Um, if I can do it, anybody can. So um, keep writing, keep trying. One day it might happen. I'd also add manuscript competitions and um, Varuna, the writer's house, which has uh, residencies and fellowships. So places where young writers are encouraged. Uh, Varuna certainly was very helpful for me in the early days. Is there another question, I think, towards the back? Yes, Thank sorry. you. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Yeah. Um, your, you seem your no- novels are set. You've taken characters that are probably not Australian and put them in Europe and the US. Is, was that a conscious decision from a sale point of view or purely because you just wanted to write those stories? Yeah, no, it just happened to be that that was the story I wanted to write. So when I was researching A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, um, the and that was about a, a woman trying to become one of the first female obstetricians, that was particularly difficult in the US because the university system had been so long established where it was different here in Australia. I mean, it was still very difficult for women, but it wasn't quite as difficult as it was over there. So as a writer, you want to pick the hardest scenario where there's the most potential for conflict. And then because my research for each book tends to focus on uh, those particular countries and the next idea kind of comes out of that, and like with the Paris seamstress, I wanted to write about the birth of the ready-to-wear industry. Well, that was in New York, so therefore it had to be set there. And with the French photographer, um, you know, I was inspired by Lee Miller and so I wanted to follow that kind of experience. So it's just kind of happened that way. Um, Yeah, Um, but certainly like next year's book, The Dior Legacy, Dior had a very strong connection to Australia. So there is quite a strong Australian connection in next year's book um, with um, the way he worked with Australia in 1948 and 1949 in particular. Um, and 1947, in fact, as well. So, um, yeah, so there is it, – it, I think it just – it's always it always comes down to the story and if the story has to take place in that country, then it has to take place there and it's hard to change those sorts of things. have time for one question. Who's going to be the one? Yes, a second question. Anyone got a first question? No, no. Woman up the back. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I was just wondering um, – if, if, when you send it off to publishers, a, a few publishers, do you send it off to a few at a time or just one at a time? And also, um, you know, how how common is it for them to steal your ideas, basically? Okay, no one ever steals your ideas. Um, it just it just doesn't happen. It's because an idea is only one part of it. Writing that idea in your voice into your particular story. If I gave everyone in the room at the same idea, you would all write it in a different way. So ideas, I mean, probably the ide- central idea of all of my books has probably been written in another book before, but it's written in a different way here. So I wouldn't ever worry about people stealing ideas. It doesn't happen at all. Um, and publishers are very ethical and that sort of thing. It just It's not something that you would need to worry about. Um, but in terms of um, submission, um, you can submit widely to a lot of people at once um, or you can just start off with one or two and personally I would recommend starting off with one or two because often 
people will come back to you and give you feedback. Mm -hmm. And certainly that was my experience in submitting my first book for publication. I had agents come back to me and say they liked this about it, but the pace of the first half was too slow. And by the time I'd had three agents tell me that, I thought, okay, maybe the pace of the first half of the book is too slow. Mm -hmm. So maybe I should go and take another look at that. Whereas if I'd sent it off to all of the agents at once, I wouldn't have had time to take the feedback on board and then rewrite the first half of the book and then resubmit it to new agents because I'd already sent it out to all of them. So I think it's important to only tackle one or two at a time so you have the chance to take on board feedback and make changes before you approach more people if you do, in fact, get feedback. So that's how I would recommend doing it. We're out of time now. It's been so terrific to have you here. Thank you so very much, Natasha. Thank you very much to our audience. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Thank you for listening to this podcast from StoryFest 2019. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at StoryFest Inc. And that's Inc. with a C. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast.